0: this is kvr kaiju vision radio episode 54 the submersion of japan kaiju and tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of kaiju and tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel. And I'm John LeMay. Yes, that's right, everyone. We've got John back for another episode. This is going to be great. We're so glad to have you on the show again. Like I said in my social media posts for the show, I was writing the episode for The Submersion of Japan before, during, and after typhoon Hagabas passed through Japan. There's a typhoon at the very end of the story in Komatsu's book that finishes off what's left of Japan and all the islands sink. Hagabas caused rivers to flood and it spawned a tornado too. And then during the typhoon, in Chiba, which is the east side of Tokyo Bay, there was a 5.7 magnitude earthquake. Hagabas is the worst typhoon to hit Japan in decades. So while writing content for this episode for the show, Japan experienced a typhoon, floods, a tornado, and an earthquake. Vision wishes the best to the people of Japan. We wish you a quick recovery. My heart goes out to the over 70 dead and over 200 injured. I wish the country of Japan a speedy recovery. I have a link to a charity called the Super Typhoon Hagabus Relief. It is from an organization called Peace Wins Japan. The site is GlobalGiving.org, and the link is on KaijuVision.com, and in the show notes in your podcasting software and on YouTube. In this episode, we will be covering the 1973 film The Submersion of Japan, or the literal Japanese title is Japan Sinks. After part one, I'll be talking with John about this incredible blockbuster tokusatsu masterpiece, its origins, and background. And then... I'll continue with the rest of the episode as usual. When I was researching for this movie, I thought to myself, is this actually what's going to happen to Japan if we fast-forward millions of years? From what I can tell, no. Eventually, Japan will reverse course and start moving west again. And I'm talking tens and hundreds of millions of years into the future. Japan will end up crashing back into Asia, and North America will crash back into Africa, and there will be a new supercontinent. But no, Japan is not going to disappear, it's not going to sink, unless something else happens that no one else knows about right now. That's the fiction part of this science fiction, but the movie is built on a very solid scientific foundation. So it's a sci-fi movie. It's a disaster movie, too. Is it a horror movie? I would think if you're in Japan and live through a major earthquake, or if you lived through a fire tornado, you'd be horrified by this movie. It would cause you to recall the pain of past dramatic experiences, much like the first Godzilla movie would do with survivors of the atomic bombings or survivors of the fire bombings in Tokyo during the Great Pacific War. This movie recalls the Kanto earthquake as well as the Great Pacific War. The more I watch this movie, though, the more it seems to become a horror film to me. And I can see some Japanese people reacting strongly to these images. When there were disasters all over the country of almost every kind... Disaster footage in a movie can and will affect you differently. The related topic for this episode is the 1923 Great Kanto Earthquake. As always, check the show notes for the times to skip to if you want to go to Part 2 or Part 3 now. There is also a divided up version of this episode as well. Much like the episode on the anime trilogy, this episode will be divided into three parts. Kaiju vision is on YouTube as well, Subscribe and see all of the episodes with original videos. A short description of the film is next. It is Kaiju Vision's unique audience-focused method to arm the listeners with the facts. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. The sinking of Japan is occurring because of an extremely fast, large, and cascading diastrophism. The west coast of Japan, facing the Sea of Japan, is being pushed up. And the east coast of Japan, facing the Pacific Ocean, is sinking. As Japan sinks from the east to the west, the country experiences nearly every kind of natural disaster on an unprecedented scale: volcanoes, lahars, landslides, earthquakes, tsunami, and wildfires. Dr. Tadokoro is an extremely serious, intelligent, and driven scientist. With regards to predicting the future, he trusts his gut feeling. His goal is to save as many Japanese people as possible from the unfolding disaster. Toshio Onodera is an experienced submarine pilot. He's primarily focused on his job. He becomes much more sacrificial as the story progresses, rising to the occasion to help his people when they need it the most. Reiko Abe is a rich, beautiful, and direct woman who wants to marry Onodera and have children. Prime Minister Yamamoto expected to have an uneventful term as prime minister, but he must also rise to the occasion and provide leadership in a difficult time. He is hardworking and thoughtful. Watari is a wise and rich 100-year-old power broker in Japanese politics. He takes a lead role in starting up and funding the D-Plan, the roadmap for how Japan can manage this crisis. Hanai is Watari's quiet and faithful niece who takes care of him. The human and disaster plots are unified, as the characters are constantly affected by the disaster. Japan's sinking is the problem. After the problem is first noticed in the deep trenches of the Northwest Pacific, the D1 plan is initiated to find out what's going on. When it's clear that Japan will indeed sink into the ocean, the D2 plan for evacuation is initiated. The options presented are to evacuate and stay together to build a new Japan somewhere, to evacuate and disperse all around the world, or to remain in Japan. The Japanese and assisting countries use boats, ships, airplanes, and helicopters to evacuate, but only a few million Japanese are able to escape. The problem is not solved, and the D-Plan is decommissioned when the evacuation process ends. Dr. Tadokoro and Watari stay at Watari's private residence to die with Japan. Onodera and Reiko end up on seemingly opposite ends of the earth. The Prime Minister takes Hanai with him to safety. The ending of the film shows Japanese refugees on trains in desolate locations. The screenplay by Shinobu Hashimoto is complex with some subplot activity, mainly the subplot involving Onodera and Reiko. It is based on Sakyo Komatsu's best-selling novel Nippon Chimbotsu, or Japan Sinks. Komatsu was known as the Arthur C. Clarke of Japan. His novel was released in March 1973 in two volumes and sold 3 million copies, making 120 million yen, or 1.5 million present-day dollars. Komatsu started writing the book in 1964, wishing to reconsider what is Japan within a post-war context. Komatsu sold the rights for the film version to Toho for 1.5 million yen, or 18,900 present-day dollars. This was followed by the release of the English translation of the book, Japan Sinks. There are parts of the original book not included in the English translation. Though not everything from the original book is used in the movie, the movie is remarkably faithful to the book. The film had a budget of 2 billion yen, or 25.1 million present-day dollars. The production value is well above average due to its large budget and high-priority status at the studio. Toho Pictures and Toho Izo co-produced the film. Shiro Moritani, directed the film. The special effects, directed by Teru Yoshi Nakano, are impressive, featuring models, miniatures, back projections, superimposition, composites, and extensive use of fire and water in disaster scenes. Some stock footage of real disasters, such as volcanoes, was interspersed with the special effects. There was clearly a lot of care put into creating the effects. Masaru Sato's score is intense while not overpowering. Some of the best moments in the soundtrack are when softer music creates suspense and heightens the intensity. It was filmed in Panavision with menoral sound. Like Dr. Tadokoro, the tone of the film is dark, with a heavy atmospheric level of gravity and utmost seriousness. There are some horrific moments showing victims of disaster trying to escape with their lives. However, the film has plenty of nuance to avoid becoming a parody of itself. It is a sci-fi film as much or even more than it is a disaster film, which is the result of the film being so grounded in real scientific principles. Like the original Godzilla film from 1954, it portrays extraordinary events in a realistic setting. As far as if this movie is experimental, it's mostly not, because there weren't that many risks other than the large budget. The book was already a huge success, so the studio had to have known this movie would be successful. However, it did do something new, which was prove to the studio that big-budget disaster movies could give them a handsome return on their investment. The same formula had already been applied in the United States, with films like Airport from 1970 and The Poseidon Adventure from 1972. The Submersion of Japan reinforces the style of previous disaster movies from the 1960s from Japan, such as Gorath and The Last War, except instead of a rogue star or a nuclear war, it's an unprecedented diastrophism. The Submersion of Japan is ultimately an expansion of style because this elevated the importance of disaster movies in Japan and disaster in sci-fi movies as a genre. The 2006 Japanese film Japan Sinks, which has the English title Doomsday, The Sinking of Japan, is a remake of The Submersion of Japan. The movie called Everything Other Than Japan Sinks is a 2006 dark comedy parody of the 2006 remake. The movie was made for fans of Komatsu's book, fans of science fiction movies, disaster movies, special effects films, and some fans of kaiju. The movie is an absolute spectacle, and it attracted a wide variety of the Japanese population. The Submersion of Japan is, in a way, a horror film on a national scale. The story has a lot to say about the Japanese nation as a whole, which undoubtedly made people want to see it. The film was released on December 29, 1973 in Japan, and was a smash hit. It was the highest-grossing Toho film of the 1970s. It made 5,340,000,000 yen, or 67.2 million present-day dollars. The film was released in the U.S. as Tidal Wave in May of 1975 through Roger Corman's New World Pictures, That movie database has a combined entry for both The Submersion of Japan and Tidal Wave, which needs to be fixed. It has a rating of 5.4 with a total of 298 votes at the time of the release of this episode. The Submersion of Japan is relatively well-known and loved by the tokusatsu fanbase. The original 143-minute film was cut down to 82 minutes for the American version. The film was dubbed and received the King of the Monsters 1956-style treatment with cinematography by Eric Saarinen and starring Lauren Green as the U.S. ambassador to Japan, among other American actors. The American version was directed by Andrew Meyer. A huge portion of the original film was cut, and like other films that received this treatment, the movie lost most of its meaning and what made it special. It became much more of a run-of-the-mill disaster movie. It did well in the American box office, making $3.5 million, or 9200000 million present-day dollars. Some Americans thought Tidal Wave was a ripoff of the 1974 American film Earthquake because it came out before Tidal Wave. However, since the Submersion of Japan was released in 1973, there is no way that the original film could be a ripoff of Earthquake. There are a number of forces at play. There is a conflict set up between Japan and nature itself. The movie emphasizes the challenges the Japanese people face as a nation by showcasing their vulnerability to natural phenomena. The Japanese people are separated from their homeland, creating all kinds of feelings among the audience, particularly feelings about what they would do in the face of such a disaster. There are a couple of themes to this story. Komatsu wrote the story because he wanted to reconsider what Japan means and what being Japanese means in a post-war context. He saw that Japan recovered from the loss of the Great Pacific War very quickly, and that the pre-Kanto earthquake prosperity, consumerism, and exuberance had returned. Like some Godzilla movies, the submersion of Japan depicts all of Japan's post-war prosperity being destroyed, and the human characters are stretched to the limit of their ability to cope. Coping with disastrous events is part of the Japanese experience, and this story is about the ultimate disaster occurring in Japan. This film is incredible because it is so much more than just a disaster movie. It connects with the zeitgeist of the Japanese national spirit, which is what makes it unforgettable. That concludes part one. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. I'll start in with my reflections. There's so much to say. Regarding the possibility of Kurosawa directing this, it obviously would have blown me away but I think this is still good. Obviously, I don't have to have Kurosawa direct a movie for me to love it. I still think it would have been epic, and probably epically expensive for Kurosawa to direct a Godzilla movie, let alone this. This movie was already expensive, and Kurosawa would have made it even more expensive. The music by Masaru Sato is incredible. He's my favorite Japanese composer from this whole era. I loved his music from all the movies he's done, Movies like Godzilla Raids Again or Ebra Horror of the Deep, Crazed Fruit, Throne of Blood, The H-Man, The Hidden Fortress, The Bad Sleep Well, Yojimbo, Sandro, High and Low, Red Beard, Son of Godzilla, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla from 1974. He's an absolutely world-renowned genius composer. About the editing of this movie, it is incredible. Michiko Ikeda edited this. The first film he did that I've seen was actually Godzilla vs. Megalon, which he did right before this movie. He went on to editing Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, then he did Godzilla vs. Biolante, and Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, two of the stronger movies in the Heisei series. I want to address disaster movies in general for a little bit, to give some context. Airport, from 1970, was a huge deal, and I saw it in the 1990s when I was younger. I didn't know it made so much money, and that it had that many Academy Award nominations. It is a good movie, though. I saw the sequels to Airport 75, Airport 77, and The Concorde, Airport 79. I had seen Airplane from 1980 before I saw any of these movies, and seeing the serious movies made me appreciate the parody much more. The sequels to Airplane and Airport aren't very good either way, they have that in common. I saw Earthquake from 1974, The Poseidon Adventure from 1972, and a few other disaster movies from the 1970s, which was the golden era of disaster movies. Earthquake has Lauren Green in it, and he was in Tidal Wave too. It seems like disaster movies from the 1970s had to have George Kennedy in them. These airplane related movies don't apply to the submersion of Japan very much but movies like Earthquake, Virus, and Meteor do. I did see Virus, which was from 1980, and is also known as Day of Resurrection. It's very late in the disaster movie fad of the 1970s, but it's a very good movie. It's also based on a story written by Komatsu, who wrote The Submersion of Japan. It's much more thoughtful, just like The Submersion of Japan is, and it's funny George Kennedy is also in that. Meteor was a Hong Kong-United States production released by AIP. I had to wait nearly an hour watching this for anything to actually happen, so anyone who thinks the submersion of Japan is slow is crazy. The submersion of Japan is a slow buildup, but you're stuck to your seat because you want to see what's going to happen in the end. Meteor was more just a bunch of dead space until the actual meteor disaster starts happening. The American movies from the 1970s had ensemble all-star casts, high budgets, and impressive special effects. They also had plenty of human drama going on in them, at least the best ones did. The Poseidon Adventure sure did, and so did Earthquake. The Towering Inferno involves a super-tall skyscraper, 135 stories tall, that a fire breaks out in. And that's impressive, too. The thing is, these kinds of movies often required big budgets... And if the movie didn't make enough money, then the movie itself is a disaster. By the time the late 70s came around, that's what happened. The novelty wore off, and then Hollywood dropped them. The second half of the 1970s saw some pretty bad movies. Really formulaic, shamelessly killing lots of people, forced over-the-top acting, and the situations kept getting more ridiculous. The Swarm is one of the most ridiculous ones. It's a swarm of killer bees that causes one disaster after another. So over the top. It would have been interesting to live during the 1970s just to see all these movies get worse and worse and more over the top. Critics largely hated them as they went on because they just became totally empty movies. Critics booed and hissed at the Cassandra Crossing premiere. Even though it made $15 million in Japan. Apparently they liked it. These movies ended up becoming parodies of themselves, and then the audiences just stopped caring. 1979 saw a bunch of bad ones, and thankfully the fad ran out of gas. My point here is that The Submersion of Japan was made at the peak of the disaster film genre, 1973, because the early 70s was when these were the best. All these movies, though, about disasters that were made in America, they lacked what Submersion of Japan has which is an event on a large enough scale, plus there's a deep connection to the national psyche. One thing the Submersion of Japan doesn't have is a lot of human drama. But that's not the point. The scale is so big that the human drama is hard to emphasize. It's more about the national experience and the country going through all of this together. It's about the collective experience, which makes sense it's Japan. This movie is a lot like the 1954 Godzilla movie, and that the whole country is going through this traumatic experience together. Komatsu also meant for it to be this big, as he wanted it to be a reflection on post-war Japan, and on the meaning of Japan. There is suspense in everything in these other American movies, but the submersion of Japan destroys an entire nation-state. It's hard to top that, other than these worldwide apocalypse movies, which there are like a almost a subcategory of their own. There were disaster movies that destroyed the whole world, but the movie isn't released worldwide and it isn't too, on too big of a scale. But the Submersion of Japan has a lot of soul, albeit large-scale soul, because it deals with such an important question. What will happen to the Japanese people? This movie is original enough, too, and you don't feel like it's such a formulaic experience. Disaster movies are technically a subgenre of action movies, but is The Submersion of Japan an action movie? I don't know if I'd describe it that way. I, don't, I wouldn't describe it as a drama, either. It's bigger than that. Sure, there is action in it, but the special effects and the scope of the story are about so much more than that. And it means a lot more to me than many other disaster movies that I've ever seen. It's not just a disaster or an accident. It's a catastrophe. It's a crisis of existence. So that's why I address these other movies of this time period, is to draw distinctions and to see how special this film is and how much it means to the Japanese and how much it means to me. Now that I've done my general reflections on the genre some and on the movie, I'm going to talk with John some more about what makes this movie so interesting. And with me now is John LeMay, the author of many books, but mainly Terror of the Lost Tokusatsu films, which, also, which discusses the submersion of Japan, as well as uh, another book that I got about unmade Godzilla films. And the one that he has out now, as of March, was a book about the unmade Kong movies called Kong Unmade. So welcome, John. Welcome back to the show.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me, Brian. I think last time I was on, we talked about Baron the unbelievable. Was is that right?
0: Yes. That was a great show. That was a good, good movie too. And it's more obscure and that's a great, great one to have your help with because uh, there are a lot of facts about it that are just kind of out there and nebulous. And this one is so well known in Japan and I've seen this thing like a hundred times now, but I had to read your book *Terror of the Lost Tokusatsu Films* in order to learn something about the background of *Submersion of Japan*. Which there's a this is a big movie. It made Toho history. It was a giant, big money money-earning blockbuster, big huge movie. So I figured you would be good to have to give some background and sort of flesh out more about the story of this movie, which is uh it's amazing. I I. This is such a big undertaking by Toho, and it's one of the reasons why I decided to do season two in the first place, just focusing on all of these Toho non-Godzilla films, and then not even some of the non-kaiju special effects films like this, and also this month will be Prophecies of Nostradamus, which I just absolutely love that too. So I just wanted to first go over some of the background with Submersion of Japan.
1: So, uh, Sakio Komatsu, the author of Submersion of Japan, has a a really interesting history with Toho. Um, Basically, Toho had bought the rights to two of his books in the past, and they didn't actually make them. I believe in 1964, they bought the rights to Komatsu's uh, sci-fi novel called Japanese Apache, which was like a post-apocalyptic Mad Max-type storyline, and Toho thought about filming it, and they didn't. The next one was Toho actually bought the rights to adapt uh, his manga East Spy um, in 1967. That one didn't get made either. And ironically enough, um, Submersion of Japan was their third attempt to make one of his films, and it was the one that they finally actually made. And what's even more ironic is when Submersion of Japan became a huge hit. That's why they made East Spy in 1974. It was just because it was you know a Komatsu property they had the rights to, but I guess I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit, um, but again, to backtrack, he started Submersion of Japan in 1964, and I have a really great quote from Komatsu that he told Brett Homnick in a 2000 issue of G-Fan. Komatsu says, I started to write uh, Japan Sinks in 1964, and it took nine years to complete, until the 15th of August, 1945, when the Showa Emperor officially declared the end of the war to the Japanese nation. All of the Japanese, especially a teenager like me, believed in governmental slogans such as Honorable Death for All Hundred Million Japanese Nations or Decisive Battle is When Americans Landed on Mainland Japan. We all made up our mind for the coming death. However, once the war was over, Japanese overcame the consequence of defeat so easily, and by the 1960s, people were happy about the rapid economical growth of the country. When I saw those circumstances, I wanted to reconsider the meaning of what Japan is and what Japanese are. That is why I wrote Japan sinks. Yeah, so
0: this is a lot about the Japanese identity, what it means to be Japanese and what the nation of Japan means. And that's a lot of what I'm going to be talking about in part 2 here about is about the the how meaningful this is because it's it's a big deal. This is not just a disaster movie. It is a disaster movie plus so many other things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about this later. But you know, Tidal Wave, the U.S. version of Japan Sinks, cuts out um, over an hour's worth of footage dealing with the more Japanese aspects of the film. But again, we'll cover that later. Um, an interesting fact that a lot of people may not know is that uh, Dai, before Toho, were the ones who wanted to adapt this novel into a film. Um, It was kind of hackneyed how they went about it. I believe it was 1971 before they went bankrupt. Uh, They wanted to do kind of a disaster movie about the Kanto earthquake. But then they heard that Komatsu was working on this novel about all of Japan sinking. And they thought, well, we want to do a movie on this. And before they even secured the rights from Komatsu, they had announced it for production in 1971 along with Gamera vs. Two-Headed Monster W. And both of those films you know, never came to be because Dai went bankrupt shortly thereafter. Now, when Submersion of Japan was actually published on March 20th, 1973, by Kobuncha, it uh, became a smash best, bestseller. It sold over 3 million copies and made uh, 120 million yen. Um, I have two different stories about Tomoyuki Tanaka in this book. One is that Tanaka optioned it for film before it actually came out. But a different account I read said that he bought it the day of its release, read it in one day, and he excitedly called Komatsu that evening to ask, ask him about the film rights. And Komatsu has a really interesting quote on that. I'm going to read it. So Komatsu, uh, he reminisced about this later to a, a website called Science Fiction Studies, and he said, I felt so obligated that in 1973, when we were discussing a film version of Japan Sinks, I gave Toho the movie rights with almost no conditions. I think they paid 1.5 million yen. Yeah, and that's not very much. No, it's not, especially for such a big hit.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I remember reading the book a couple of years ago. I got it, and I also read it in one night. I could not put it down. It was just amazing to read. There was so much and I and I can totally tell how this was a big hit in Japan that I've no doubt in my mind that it was such a popular phenomenon.
1: What I, I think it says something. See, I saw the movie first and usually if I see the movie, I won't go to the trouble to read the book, but I, I actually love this film so much. I wanted to actually read the book that inspired it. And there are quite a few differences, which we'll, we'll cover here in a bit um, to return just to like the production Um, It was actually, well, it came out as the New Year's blockbuster in December of 1973, but initially they were actually eyeing it for March of 1974. And that would have been kind of ironic because then Submersion of Japan would have come out the same year as the famous 1974 earthquake movie. So it's really a good move on Toho's part that they've released it in 1973 so people can look at those, those years and connect the dots that, no, Submersion of Japan was not inspired by Earthquake. Um, it actually came out before it. Um, so they put a lot of thought into it. There were four different script drafts written, and they also had a lot of consultation by a geophysicist, um, and seismic engineers, oceanographers, all sorts of Japanese experts, and even uh, the special effects director Toshiyuki Nakano, he joked that he became a quote unquote expert on earthquakes, and he said that he had read more than 70 books on earthquakes to prep for the film. Oh my gosh, that's a lot. Yeah. So to talk about some of the uh, the differences between the book and the movie, um, you know, as with anything, it's basically faithful of the book, you know, it follows that same outline. Basically, all you miss is just um, a few extra scenes or some characters that got cut out. So one of our first big differences in the book and the movie was uh, they had a very significant scene early in the book that had our main, our main character, Onadera uh, he witnesses the volcanic eruption that mysteriously sinks the island. You know, because in the film, what sets off uh, the plot is this island mysteriously sinks under the ocean. And oddly enough, we don't see that in the film; it's only spoken of. But um, in the early script drafts, we we're supposed to actually see the island sink, and for whatever reason, they cut it out. But um, that was one of the the bigger scenes cut, you know, from the movie that was in the book. Um, they also Onodera and the other investigators were supposed to talk to some Japanese and Polynesian fishermen who who were actually on the island when it sunk and made it off before it did. The movie you know, has to condense the action, so there are only two trips down below in the Wadatsumi sub- submarine. But in the book, there are three trips down below. And what I think is funny is in the book, there's kind of a quasi-kaiju uh, because they see a 100-foot-long stingray. Um so I would guess Toho took that out for either budgetary reasons or maybe they didn't want to confuse people into thinking this was one of their monster movies and they took that out. That's what I would probably assume. Okay, now here's the biggest difference between the book and the movie. It cuts out uh, a minor character who is actually very important. So big plot in the movie is that Onodera is getting into an arranged marriage with a woman named Rico – and this is all through Onodera's boss, Yoshimura. He sets him up with Rico Abe. Um, now, before they go to Rico's house in the book, they have a, a scene where Yoshimura and Onodera go to a club. And at the club is a hostess named Mako. And uh, she and Onodera kind of have a little flirtatious relationship, and um, it's kind of Komatsu's way of showing us you know, that she's important and we need to remember this character. And, uh, anyways, after talking to Mako, and uh, Onodera leaves the club with uh, Yoshimura, and he takes them to Rico's house, and they meet and they connect pretty well. And, you know, as in the film. Ono, Dara and Rico have sort of a, they have a romance, but it is an arranged marriage, which is a very Japanese concept uh, compared to what Americans would be used to in the 1970s. You know that was more right. of an outdated concept. So
0: yeah,
1: and that was something that's definitely taken out of title wave, but we're, we'll talk about that later. Um, but what I'm getting at, I'm trying to I'm trying to just inform people who haven't read the book how different the ending is. So again, I was talking about this hostess named Mako. And at the end of the book, uh, Onodera, you know, as in the film, he, he's he's lost track of Rico. He doesn't know where she is. And, um, you know, of course, this is in the days before cell phones when it was easy to keep in touch. You know, he's totally lost track of his fiance. And um, he's, he's doing his part to rescue every Japanese citizen that he possibly can. And he rescues these hikers in the Alps. And one of them turns out to be Mako. And one of our... One of the last times we see Onodera in the book is he's he's caught up in this accident in the Alps and kind of lose track of him for a while. And then Komatsu has this epilogue in the book, and it's like supposed to be a surprise twist ending. Now, the film ends um, with Onodera and Rico and these trains on opposite sides of the world. We don't know where they are, we just know that Onodera is on a train and Rico's on a train, but they're not on the same train. Right. Um, now the, the book definitely has a surprise ending because we, Onodera wakes up he thinks he's on a ship and he's got a woman there and he refers to the woman as his wife and you know you, you're thinking oh he finally found Rico but he didn't um, Onodera has for some reason married Mako the hostess and he's on a train with her somewhere and he doesn't know where Rico is and that's how the novel ends so yeah, I remember very that different now. from the film yeah mm-hmm. very different but yeah,
0: I was rather shocked at how faithful the book is, though, or the movie is to the book. Mostly beat for beat, a lot of things from the book. I like it when a movie does that. And there are some movies where I read the book and I'm like, man, this should have been so much more like the book. The way I saw this movie was I saw the, the Japanese version of it, the, the original Submersion of Japan, but there weren't any subtitles. I think it was because I was waiting on the book to arrive. And then I read the book, and then I got a hold of the movie with subtitles, and then watched that. And then I was like, okay, yeah. But I was really happy with the movie once I saw it with subtitles, because it it was so incredibly accurate and faithful to the book.
1: And Komatsu as well was very happy. He he has a quote in G-Fan. He says, The movie was quite faithful to the original story, and I was quite satisfied. So even Mm -hmm. he uh, acknowledged that, which can be kind of rare with authors sometimes. And he mentioned uh, the scene that he was really disappointed that was cut. And It's kind of a minor scene. Um, It's an odd scene. Um, We remember there's a character in the book and the movie. His name is Prince Watari, or the old man.
0: uh, He
1: has a handmaiden named uh, Hanai. Mm -hmm. And uh, Komatsu said that his biggest regret was they didn't have the scene where um japan's about to sink and watari is telling Hanai, you know to leave go have children and she uh she almost wants to stay with watari and die but he convinces her to go and she mentions how she needs to change clothes and watari asks if he can watch her and dress one more time before he dies and that was the scene <laughs> that uh, komatsu was so disappointed they didn't put into the film <laughs> that's interesting
0: does she smile like ever in this movie? I don't or, recall.
1: I, I haven't seen I it quite so. as many times as you have. I don't think I've, I discovered this film late in life. I was, I was 30 when I finally saw it. Yeah. I only saw it a couple years ago
0: and I was just, uh, I was really amazed with the special effects and just how well put together the story was, but it's, I don't think she ever smiles in this movie. I think i I was sort of waiting for like, uh, there are a couple movies that have done this. I think Chaplin did it first, but it was one of the ones where the, the character smiles at the very end. And that's like the last thing you see <laughs> sort of waiting for somebody to do Chaplin and, uh, and have her like smile at the very end, but there was nothing to smile about at the end of this movie. There really wasn't. This is definitely not one of those movies that you get Sekizawa to write the script and, and have oh. <laughs> all comedic things happening. Definitely don't need Sekizawa with his little light, touches on this this is a it's a pretty bleak pretty bleak movie and oddly enough it's not what I would call depressing I guess it stands back far enough to be able to be objective the destruction alone is enough the music could have had so much more depression and doom in it but it didn't and I I really love the soundtrack by Sato he composed some really good music for this it could have been a lot thicker, and, and the depression in the movie and the book could have been a lot thicker, too. I didn't read it. I don't know if you've, re- I don't know if you've read it either, but the, the book, World War Z. No, uh-uh. This book is apparently really good. I want to read it, but it's, it, it's almost like a, a disaster more than it is a zombie movie. It's treated like a virus outbreak, you know, and so, so like the story is just, it follows around various characters as this disaster unfolds. I think it would probably be sort of like something Komatsu would actually have written. It's just about the events unfolding, like th- this movie could have been so much more dramatic. It could have involved so much more human drama. It could have involved... You know, Onodera, you know, us staring at Onodera going through emotions. It's giving us a, a matter-of-fact thing because people who are watching it are already feeling enough. There are a lot of other movies, disaster movies, that there's a lot more human drama involved. To me, it's more about the disaster itself, the totality and and the scale of it, more than it is about all of these relationships and all and like emphasizing the drama this does not emphasize the drama as much and instead it it emphasizes the events and the efforts to try to save japan and the evacuation there's a lot of ground that's covered they explain so much stuff to us about how earthquakes work and how plate tectonics works and just all of these really good explanations to make sure that everybody knows what's going on and i appreciate that this movie did that
1: Everything you just said really reminded me of how different this movie is from Deathquake in 1980, also by Toho. Have you have you seen that one? I've I
0: heard of it and read about it. It looks really good.
1: Okay, so you and I had a conversation earlier about Earthquake and the melodrama in Earthquake with Charlton Heston and his wife and his mistress. Um, what's really funny is Toho's Deathquake movie from 1980 also has a main character who has a wife and a mistress and there's a lot it's really more about that melodrama than it is the earthquake and so it's more like a traditional disaster movie um in that sense which i think is funny so i do want to take just a second to talk about deathquake because some of the very small abandoned uh, concepts from the submersion of japan movie actually made their way into deathquake years later so in 1980, you know, Toho had kind of quit doing so many effects films, and they remembered what a big hit Submersion of Japan was, and they wanted to do another one, and so they, they did Deathquake, which is also based upon a novel, but not a not a Saki komatsu novel. But what I think is funny is Submersion of Japan, the novel, it has a scene where, where an airplane is landing just as the earthquake occurs, and the ground upheaves, and it breaks this jumbo jet in two. And it was a really amazing scene, you know, that it was kind of a shame it wasn't in Submersion of Japan, but it is in Deathquake. So I have to make an educated guess that, you know, that was a scene maybe they wanted to do for Submersion of Japan. And since they didn't do it, they inserted it into Deathquake. And I also know the Submersion of Japan script had a scene where the prime minister um, is on a golf course and he's getting briefed on you know this impending tragedy this impending uh, disaster and that scene also was cut from submersion and for whatever reason they moved it into deathquake in 1980 so just some funny little similarities and you could kind of consider deathquake to be like an inferior little remake of submersion of japan not not a bad movie by any means it's just submersion of japan is such a masterpiece you know deathquake is kind of it's just not as good of a movie by comparison but I, I think I got us kind of off topic there. But um. that's funny that
0: you mentioned that because there is a deleted scene from Earthquake with exactly that at the towards the beginning of the movie, we're shown this couple that's on this airplane. What's going on here? Why are they? You know, because at the beginning of the movie, they're sort of just loading up all this earthquake fodder and all these people to you know have horrible things happen to them, and sort of just getting everybody's getting in line. The plane is landing, and then the, the earthquake happens, and the ground upheaves, and they have to... It's not a very well-filmed scene. It's really drawn out, and the actual moment that this happens is like 30 seconds, probably. Something like that would, would take to happen. But they, they're able to put the engine power back up, and I think what happens is is that the plane takes back off again, and they're able to escape it. It's funny that uh, Deathquake had the scene back there and it was originally planned for Submersion of Japan, too, because Earthquake actually had a deleted scene with this happening. That's funny.
1: Apparently I need to watch Earthquake because there's a lot of similarities between it and Deathquake that I just had no idea existed before I talked to you.
0: Yeah, I, I liked Earthquake. I I It was actually probably one of my favorite 70s disaster movies from the United States. And it might be that Deathquake... Since it's towards the, you know, it's in nineteen eighty, so it's already you know like late seventies was when a lot of these were going to hell. But I think maybe Deathquake is kind of like a Japanese response to a whole bunch of these disaster movies that happened in America, and they and that's maybe one reason why there is more drama in it. Is because because it's 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 like a it's like a response or a, a sort of a. Sort of meant to fit in more with uh, the traditional disaster movies from America and what people had gotten used to watching. That's, that's very interesting. I'm going to have to see Deathquake.
1: Yeah, I think you would definitely enjoy it. Just um, and there's a lot of um, I don't want to say stock footage, but I think there are like alternative unused effects take, takes from uh, Submersion of Japan that yoshi nakano put into deathquake so it's got a lot of that footage in there just alternate angles and things like that
0: that's pretty cool uh earthquake uses some stock footage from a couple of other movies or television shows too and so like but it's still really good unless you saw like every movie from around back then you would not be able to tell 70s movies that have stock footage in them they i think audiences now they're a little bit too hard on them Uh, yeah These disaster movies from the 70s are an amazing topic.
1: Yeah, well, and speaking of those, you know, we've been talking about Earthquake. And the U.S. edited version of Submersion of Japan was called Tidal Wave, and it came out in 1975. And naturally, people thought it was a ripoff of Earthquake, but it wasn't. Um, just to reiter- reiterate again, Submersion of Japan was released uh, in Japan in December of 1973. Nine million people went to go see it. That's actually as many people that went to go see Mothra in 1961, so it was a huge hit. Yeah, their highest grossing film of the 1970s, I believe. Their highest grossing film, if adjusted for inflation, until Godzilla vs. Mothra in 1992. So it's just it's a huge movie. It's just... Western fans don't really know as much about it because it didn't have Godzilla or any monsters in it. but to talk about the the unfortunate Americanization of that film which really eliminates um, the more you know Japanese aspects of the film, um, it was picked up by Roger Corman's New World Pictures uh, in 1974. you know he had seen what a big hit earthquake was and he saw somewhere you know the Japanese cut submersion of Japan. And he decided, well, let's buy that and then let's make it more appealing to Westerners. And how he decided to do that was basically copy what they did for Gojira, you know, Godzilla, King of the Monsters with Raymond Burr. Um, so he, Corman got uh, not a big American star, but he was <laughs> – as you told me earlier, Brian, I didn't know this. Uh, he got an yeah, actor Lauren from Green. Earthquake. Yeah, Lauren Green. Yeah, and
0: that's probably maybe one reason why they thought that. That this was a a bad you know remake or whatever of Earthquake from Japan is because Lauren Green was in both of these things. He was in Earthquake too.
1: Exactly, and then and I didn't know that until you told me that because again I've never seen Earthquake, so that's a very interesting factoid I didn't know, and I'm gonna add that to a book that I'm working on right now before I forget. But um, yeah, yeah, Lauren Green was in Earthquake, but he's more familiar to most people from the television western series Bonanza. He was the oh, lead yeah. on that. And, it, you know, it was basically the same process of, as Godzilla King of the Monsters. They did the filming for Tidal Wave in two to three days. That was it. The new director of the American footage, he wrote about 20 pages of dialogue. And then Roger Corman rented out a hotel suite for the weekend. That way they didn't have to build sets. G-Fan actually did an interview with the cameraman from Tidal Wave. His name is Eric Saarinen. I, I hope I said that right. This is his quote from G-Fan about the new scenes they filmed to insert into tidal wave. He says, it was just dialogue, you know, and it was the stuff you'd cut back and forth from the Japanese cast somewhere else or to the tidal wave or whatever. There was a sort of revolving door of fairly well-known actors that would come in and take different parts of generals or, you know, the American interests. And he also goes on to say, Lauren Green was a total professional and was very well liked amongst our small crew. So, I've actually seen *Tidal Wave*. It's not like *Godzilla: King of the Monsters* exactly. Um, it's not like Lauren Green interacts with uh, the lead, which would be Hiroshi Fujioka, I believe that's his name, or, or Tetsuro Tamba. He doesn't interact with him. Basically, Lauren Green, he plays uh, an a U.S. ambassador. He speaks during scenes uh, at the. Uh, united nations and there are like a few scenes that they edit green into that are in the japanese version that are set at the united nations like they edit green into those but that's about it and he doesn't have a whole lot of screen time um he doesn't show up until the 40 minute mark and tidal wave is only 80 minutes to begin with so he doesn't show up until halfway until the movie's over wow yeah (laughs) And again, it's just a very watered-down version of Submersion of Japan. It's, again, over, let's see, 71 minutes total were cut. That's a lot of footage. Of <laughs> course, most of the disaster footage is intact, basically. Um, but a lot of the more Japanese scenes to do with Japanese culture and the Japanese sphere of, of their culture disappearing once the land disappears, you know, that was cut out. Um, there's some restructuring, kind of similar to how the U.S. version of uh, Ghidra, the three-headed monster, moved around a lot of footage. There's some of that. Um, I mean, we could talk the whole podcast about the differences, but uh, which I don't think we want to do. But a lot of differences, and it definitely, ugh, it definitely ruined the movie. You know, because I can watch the original Godzilla and watch King of the Monsters and see how King of the Monsters is still a pretty good movie on its on its own right. Yeah, it's still not that bad. Yeah, and I wouldn't say that about Tidal Wave, though. It's not very (sighs) good. Um, Roger Ebert really didn't like it. Um, (laughs) I have his review here in front of me. Uh, Roger Ebert, you know, and again, he didn't see the Japanese version. All he saw was this U.S. version. And this is what Ebert had to say. Actually, I want to preface this with Roger Ebert loved super inframan which also came out in 1975 which is a really wonky crazy movie he he gave super inframan super high marks was that the one from hong kong yes it's oh yeah i saw that when i was a kid i loved that (laughs) see i i didn't see that one as a kid so i can't say i loved it um i saw it as an adult you know so to me it was pretty goofy yeah
0: it it is just goofy if you're not (laughs) if you're not the right age it's Yeah, it's sort of like one of those things where you you had to have been
1: there. (laughs) So again, this is what Ebert says, you know, the guy who loved Super Inframan. This is what he says about Tidal Wave. Bad movies are getting really awful these days. It seems like only yesterday we were savoring bombs like The Vengeance of She and Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster. Movies so terrible, they achieved a sort of greatness. I was hoping Tidal Wave would be a movie like that. When publicity photographs arrived in the mail a few weeks ago, I was heartened by the sight of the staples holding together the cardboard skyscrapers. I just want to interject and say I do not think they look like cardboard skyscrapers. I never saw any staples. I think Ebert's just no. being overly cruel here. Yeah. Um, the miniatures are great, so I think he, that's a really unfair swipe at it. Um, anyways, though, Ebert's acting like he was excited by this fact, and I'll continue his little review here. He says, Here was a movie with a real lack of promise. It even looked like a good bet to outflank King Kong versus Godzilla. But Tidal Wave let me down. It is purely and simply a wretched failure, a feeble attempt to paste together inept special effects filmed in Japan and Lorne Green filmed in America to his everlasting regret, I'll bet. And he ends his review by stating, the movie never ends, but if you wait long enough, it gets to a point where it's over. So I, I really oh wonder what Ebert would have thought if he saw the actual original cut, which you know really is a very good film.
0: Well, that is, it's, it is kind of like what American remakes of Japanese movies like this are like it, it takes out the meaning a lot of the meaning of the original Godzilla got taken out for King of the Monsters and a lot of the meaning from uh, Return of Godzilla got taken out for Godzilla 85 uh, getting back to the the guy that did the cinematography for uh, Tidal Wave uh, Eric Saranen he is the son of Aero saarinen Eero saarinen was the Finnish American architect who designed the Washington Dulles Airport, the TWA Flight Center in New York City? He also designed the Gateway Arch. He's a very well-known architect, and I'd, I'd find it amazing that uh, Eric Sarnen actually did Tidal Wave. But uh, Eric Sarnen is a—he was a cinematographer, and he's—he's uh, he's still alive now, but. Uh, he he has uh, done the cinematography for quite a few movies, but yeah, he that's uh, that's son. I I do want to see it sometime, just to be able to say that I did, and and it's pretty short too compared to uh, Submersion of Japan. So uh, I did, I do want to get get through that sometime.
1: Uh, some of the other kind of needless things I did, or ah, needless things that they did in the editing process. You know, they have the character of Doctor Tadokoro. For some reason, they renamed him Mr Tanaka onodera became onoda and they do change in addition to cutting out a lot of scenes they change the dialogue i think it's kind of funny again this difference between japanese arranged marriages and how people in the united states would see that i know they have a scene where onodera in the japanese version he straight up tells Rico over the phone he's like I don't know if I'm in love with you, but I think it, it may not be too bad to spend the rest of my life with you. And that like thrills her, you know, to her that's high romance, but I think they knew that for American audiences, they'd be like, wait, what did he just say that to her? And so like they <laughs> redub it to become much more romantic and passionate and things like that. One of the really great scenes in the Japanese version is the final scene between Tetsuro Tamba's prime minister and Dr. Tadakoro and tatakoro gives this wonderful kind of eulogy to japan as it's sinking and of course they cut that out of tidal wave it's not in there really summarized the film and it something about submersion of japan is i wouldn't say it has like the traditional climax you would expect you know it the big special effects set pieces are kind of already over by the time that we get to the end of the film. So, to me, Tadokoro's eulogy is kind of like the closing remark to summarize the whole film. And to cut that out is really awful. And then the other bad thing that Tidal Wave does is the title because it's not really about a Tidal Wave, it's about an earthquake. They just couldn't yeah. call it an Earthquake. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's so Yeah, that's really bad. <laughs>
1: There is a title scene, and this, this gives you a false expectation as well, because there is a tsunami scene towards the end of the movie, but the tsunami scene really isn't anywhere near as fantastic as the, uh, the Tokyo earthquake scene. Right. You know, so, I mean, it gives the audience a false expectation for a tidal wave movie when it really isn't that. In the
0: Terror of the Lost Tokusatsu films, you mentioned how Akira Kurosawa was almost the director for this. Or at least was being considered. I think that would have been utterly amazing because I'm a huge Kurosawa fan. But if if he had been associated with this production, it probably would have been even more expensive than it already was. It also it would have been amazing though to see what he could have done with a a movie like this. Absolutely. The guy that plays the prime minister. In this movie he is in he's in both of the movies on kaiju vision this month because he's in submersion of japan and he's also in the prophecies of nostradamus in a very uh, very prominent role
1: so okay we we had a private conversation earlier joking about charlton heston being like the king of the u.s disaster movies well yeah, yeah so Tetsuro Tenba. Tetsuro Tenba, yeah he i mean he was basically the charlton heston of the japanese disaster movies um If that name sounds familiar to to Westerners, probably where you saw him was You Only Live Twice, the James Bond film where he played uh, Tiger Tanaka. So he uh, he was a pretty big star. But after Submersion of Japan, he became the go to disaster star, not just for Toho, because Tambo was also in Toei's uh, disaster movie Bullet Train, um, which I, I would like to see one day, but I haven't. I feel like this is a good opportunity to really talk about how Submersion of Japan kind of changed the landscape for the good and the bad as far as Godzilla movies go. Because I'll go out on a limb here and say we probably have a lot of Godzilla fans listening. So, uh, 1973. I believe it was Toho's 40th anniversary year. 1973 was a big anniversary year for them, and they had certain productions earmarked as special anniversary productions, and one of them was... uh, Core of the Wolf, which was also adapted from a novel. And one of them was, believe it or not, Godzilla vs. Megalon, which was probably a surprise because it was basically the cheapest Godzilla movie of that time ever. We always talk about Godzilla vs. Megalon and how low-budgeted budget is budgeted it was, and then we compare it to Submersion of Japan, which is so lavish. But what's funny is, you might notice the very next year, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla was obviously a much higher budgeted feature. And the reason that was, uh, I hear from uh, a Teroshi Nakano interview, I don't remember which one it was, but he said that Submersion of Japan was so successful that they were actually able to pump more money into the effects budget for the next year's Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. And furthermore, um, they also... Used a few outtakes or B roll footage um, from Submersion of Japan, I believe, in regards to uh, the oil refinery attack in Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. So that's oh, kind yeah. of an interesting way. Yeah. Now, the, the, that's the good way that it impacted the Godzilla series, but the bad way is um, Toho basically learned that our money isn't in Godzilla anymore. Toho was making a lot of money off of Godzilla in terms of tie in merchandising, but they weren't selling as many tickets to Godzilla movies. You know, the 70s Godzilla films would be lucky to go over 1 million tickets sold. Yeah, and Terror of Mechagodzilla did quite badly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, 1975, and that was that's why it was the last one for so long. Um, and Toho's big hits started to become disaster movies. I would, actually, in Japan, they don't call them disaster movies. They called them panic movies. And this trend... Kind of continued. Um, so in 1974, that's when Great Prophecies of Nostradamus came out, and it too was based off of a novel. And that's why I think Tomoyuki Tanaka he wanted to replicate this uh, success of the Submersion of Japan novel adaptation. So that's that's why he adapted um, Great Prophecies of Nostradamus. And also uh, we you know we kind of already covered this, but Toho had purchased the rights to East Spy as in a spy with esp um that was by komatsu from the 1960s and they suddenly remembered oh we have this other komatsu movie why don't we just make it because his name is a hot commodity right now yeah i really want to see that i i endorse it i think it's very good uh japanese version as always much better than the uh, u.s cut but um toho's panic movie thing it actually kind of petered out by 1975 they produced a film called uh, Tokyo Bay in Flames also by a novel i don't know if it was a hit or not all i know is for some reason toho quit doing godzilla movies in 1975 and they also quit doing their disaster movies until 1980s deathquake movie so i don't know what their deal was but i do know sakio komatsu you know he he was one of those uh you get one hit movie from his ideas and then you get like three or four movies that weren't a hit Um, that doesn't include East Spy. East Spy was a big hit but Komatsu's other sci-fi movies uh, they weren't really big hits his other his other ones were actually very expensive flops Uh, in 1980 there was day of resurrection or virus as it's known here in the West a highly budgeted film it was a flop they had Komatsu's Sayonara Jupiter also a a box office bomb and finally, in 1987, his last sci-fi film adaptation, uh, Tokyo Blackout, about an alien cloud that comes over Tokyo, if I'm not mistaken, that also wasn't really a very big hit. So, you know, it's another example of where you get one or two hits out of Komatsu, and then the studios keep trying his properties, but they're not always a, a success, you know, which is kind of interesting.
0: Right, yeah, and uh, the season finale, season two finale for Kaiju Vision will be uh, Sinar, Jupiter. And uh yeah i I've read uh, some about this movie already, and it is it was a pretty big flop,
1: yeah and oh it, just as a, as an aside uh, per our our conversation earlier, there is a cut of cyaar at Jupiter without the dolphin and it's it was the TV cut. They actually removed all those silly <laughs> scenes with the dolphin and it's it's tonally a little more consistent.
0: Oh, I imagine that would uh even it out a bit. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) makes sense. I think the last thing we can do is the TV
1: series. That's right. Yeah, something I forgot to mention, too. In addition to these other Komatsu film adaptations, there was also a Submersion of Japan TV series, which I've never seen. I would like to. I don't believe it's supposed to be in continuity with the film. I think it's like a TV adaptation of the book, so it's not supposed... It's not like... Like Marvel's Agents of Shield and the Avengers movies, it's it's two different continuities, just the same property.
0: Yeah, and I think the the finale of the TV series was actually the the Tokyo earthquake, and so it, but in in the movie it was actually in the middle of the movie, so yeah, it's pretty different. And then uh, Komatsu didn't even see it for a while, and then when he did, he said it wasn't very good.
1: Yeah, that's what I that's what he's told science fiction studies. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he said. So I I would think if I wrote a book and it got adapted into a TV series, I would find the time to watch it, but who knows?
0: Yeah, I think you would. There is that sort of phenomenon of when like a when an author writes a book that's really successful and then it gets made into a, a movie and then the the author watches the movie and then he's like, oh, this is terrible, don't watch it, yeah. it's terrible, it's it's not faithful to my vision of the movie, don't... I've seen that replayed so many... that scenario redone so many different times.
1: Yeah, and one other last aside we can take before before you move on to talking about the film's themes is there was almost a sequel, you know, in Japan oh, yeah. it was called Yeah, Sinking of Japan continuation, but it was actually even reported uh, in the U.S. in Famous Monsters of Filmland. They called it After Japan Sinks. And uh, I don't really see how you do a sequel to a movie like that when Japan has already sunk and what are you going to do next. But yes, they talked about doing a sequel for about five years, I think. I want to say some of the trouble Toho had with filming Nessie with Hammer kind of sunk some of their other projects. Um... The other problem with the Japan Sync sequel was Komatsu couldn't really come up with a concept, but he did in the 2000s. He finally wrote a sequel. And it's – I don't think it's the sequel they would have made back in the 1970s because Komatsu's – Sequel. It's very futuristic. Japan constructs these huge floating islands and creates a new version of the Japanese islands, which to me totally doesn't fit with that film that we saw from 1973. So I really don't think that would have been the plot of the sequel had it actually been made. But there is a sequel. Um, it hasn't been translated into English yet, but it is out there. So
0: Definitely doesn't seem uh, like it would be a very interesting continuation tonally.
1: I think the only things I've heard about it is as far as like the stuff people really want to see, which is the disaster scenes, is that I believe the volcanoes would start erupting elsewhere in the world like they did in Japan and there's like the threat of a new ice age or something. And then the other big focus of uh, the sequel at the time was how are the uh, the Japanese people being assimilated into these foreign countries and how are they losing their culture and this and that. Yeah, and that would be kind of depressing. Like that, like it, and it wouldn't have very much
0: disaster stuff in it. Like it, that's probably what I would assume a, a sequel would do: is actually just continue the the events from the first movie, and it it would essentially just be that it'd be them struggling with assimilation and contacting each other again and and getting back together. But that's really just that doesn't make for a very compelling story, really, unless you have something else going on. If, if you have volcanoes start popping up in Nevada and Arizona where they all move to, you know, like they just <laughs> like but yeah. that, doesn't sense, that doesn't make any sense either. You know, like you can't it's not like you can have the disaster. Just follow them.
1: You see that that reminds me of the sequels to the bad romantic movies where you can't think of what to do for the sequel other than you break up the couple so they can get back together again. Like, OK, the Japanese move. Here's another disaster to follow. them. I, I think it was better. There was no sequel. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, this has been a really interesting talk and, uh, I've really enjoyed having you on and this has been, this has been good because this is such a huge movie and it's one of the reasons why I decided to do Toho Tokusatsu movies to begin with for this season. I just absolutely love this movie and thank you for giving everybody a lot more background on this that I either didn't know or couldn't have provided. And, and, uh, it's, it was great to, give more of the story about this movie and, uh, your, the book that you talk about sm- the submersion of Japan a lot is terror of the lost tokusatsu films. Uh, and, uh, I got that right here on the table with me and it's a uh, very good and full of really interesting facts about all of these tokusatsu movies. And there are so many great things going on in these movies. And like earlier in the season, we did the last war, you know, no kaiju. Uh, it's really good to have you on and to and to discuss these movies because uh, they're they're great. And definitely everybody should see Submersion of Japan. I, I've seen it so many times. I sometimes just pop it in just to have it on when I'm doing something else. So it's been great. And your newest book that is out this year is Kong Unmade, The Lost Films of Skull Island. If you want to learn more about Kong and the run-up to the Godzilla vs. Kong movie next year, definitely get a
1: copy of that and thank you, Brian, for letting me talk about one of my favorite films, because Submersion of Japan is definitely, in my opinion, one of the best. So thank you.
0: And uh, I will be moving on next to the chronological rundown featuring up next.